Matthew 28, the last paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew. These are God's words. Please read with me, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so ends the Gospel of Matthew. We've spent the last two years walking through this gospel, and we've watched a great variety of people interact with Jesus as he revealed himself and proclaimed the gospel of his kingdom. Our passage today is especially valued by those of us who trace our roots to the evangelical movement. We call it the Great Commission. And if you've been around as long as I have, you've heard many sermons calling you to go into all the world to make disciples. And the text, the text is a commissioning. But we can get the emphasis of what Matthew is communicating, we can get it wrong. Now I want to think for just a minute about what it means to commission someone in a few weeks, it will be graduation day at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Nancy and I lived near there for many years, and so we were aware of all the activity surrounding the graduation. The midshipmen who are graduating after four years of study at the Academy will receive what's called a commission. They become commissioned officers. This means that they will have authority over enlisted sailors under their assigned command. To receive this commission, they swear an oath of loyalty to the United States Constitution. But who gives the commission? Our Constitution says that only the President of the United States can commission a military officer. Now, in May, the president will not be present at this commissioning ceremony, but each graduate will receive a document signed by the president, but we know that few will ever even meet him. The speeches given at the graduation and commissioning will be all about these new officers. The speeches will be about the graduates, their future, their service, the needs of the country. They will call these newly commissioned officers to fulfill their duties faithfully. In Jesus' commissioning of his disciples, he gives them one command. 
make disciples. And while this command launches the disciples into the future, that's not Matthew's first priority in writing these final words. Instead, these final words tell us all about Jesus. They tell us where Matthew wants his disciples to give their attention. As with his entire gospel, Matthew wants us to see Jesus. What's really interesting about Matthew 28, if you compare it to the other accounts of the resurrection and what followed, what's really interesting is not only what Matthew tells us about Jesus' resurrection and what follows, it's what he leaves out. There's no mention of Peter and John at the empty tomb. No mention of Jesus revealing himself to the two men on the road to Emmaus. No mention of Jesus' appearance with the disciples the night of his resurrection. And then eight days later, Matthew leaves all of that out. And he was present at those events. He's the tax collector whom Jesus called to be his disciple. All Matthew tells us is that on the third day of Jesus' death, two women went to the tomb where Joseph of Arimathea had buried him, and there they found the entrance stone blown aside and an angel telling them that Jesus is risen and that they're to go and tell his disciples to go meet him in Galilee. On their way away from the tomb, these two women run into Jesus himself. They fell on their knees, and Matthew records, they took hold of Jesus' feet and worshipped him. So Matthew wants us to know he's not a ghost. One does not grab the feet of a ghost. He is truly risen, and these women recognize that he is divine. They worship him. Jesus repeats to them the instructions the angels gave them to go tell his disciples to meet him in Galilee. The next thing that we hear about Jesus and the disciples is our text today. Matthew doesn't even record Jesus' ascension into heaven. What we have in these five verses are what Matthew considers important for us to know as he concludes his gospel. Jesus commissions his disciples, but the focus of their commission and their life and ministry is to be on him. Yes, the task is important, but the task is not central. And we do wise to pay attention to this. So instead of calling it the great commissioner, sounds a little tacky, but it might be better to title it the great commissioner. So let's pose four questions of the text. Okay, we're going to try to answer these four questions. Number one, whom did the disciples see? Number two, what has changed with Jesus? Number three, what did Jesus command? And number four, what did Jesus promise? So let's take up this first question. Whom did Jesus, I'm sorry, whom did the disciples see? 
verses 16 and 17. Let's look at it again so it's fixed in our minds. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Only 11 came. Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, is dead by suicide. They had traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee, the place where Jesus told them to go. They go to the mountain. ESV, it says, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. It's it's a, a small point, but literally it's the mountain where Jesus told them to go. The directions are not definite. He doesn't give them a... It's not like, I will meet you at the corner of Route 27 and Stringtown Road. He just says, go to the mountain. If I told you to meet me on Sugarloaf Mountain, I could mean any place within a few square miles. So they are somewhere on this mountain. Now, maybe they'd hung out there with Jesus sometime before. Text doesn't tell us. But they're on the mountain, and they they don't even know when he's going to arrive. They're just on the mountain. He said, go to the mountain. We don't know whether they were there for days or hours, but somewhere in the distance they see Jesus. I say in the distance because in verse 18, Jesus came to them. So maybe he uh, appeared on a ridge line or at the end of a path or they saw him coming through the trees. However he approached, they immediately recognized him and they worshiped him. Now that's highly significant because these men are faithful Jews and they know that the ultimate blasphemy is to worship anyone or anything other than God. Who did the disciples see? They saw the God-man, Jesus the Messiah, God enfleshed as a human being, and they worshiped him. But then Matthew includes, and you've got to wonder, why did he put this in here? It's like bad advertising. (laughs) Some doubted. What did they doubt? That it was really Jesus? That he was God and worthy of worship? That he was truly resurrected? The word translated doubt is only used two times in the New Testament. And that's how we often get definitions of words in the Bible. We look how the same word is used in other places in the Bible. Well, we only get two. And the other one is in Matthew 14. Jesus has just miraculously provided a meal for 5,000 people. Afterward, he sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee in a boat while he went up a mountain to pray. It's a rough night on the water. The disciples must strain at the oars because the wind is against them. And out of the darkness and the wind and the waves walks Jesus on top of the water. The disciples are terrified. But Jesus identifies himself. And Peter 
asks Jesus if he can join him walking on the water. And Peter does it. He really walks on the water with Jesus. But as he's out there for a while, he begins to sink. And he cries out for the Lord to save him. And Jesus grabs him by the hand and he says, Oh, you of little faith, why do you... Same word we have in Matthew 28. Why do you doubt? Peter did have faith. He volunteered to get out of the boat in rough water at Jesus' invitation. In other literature of the period, the word doubt can mean anything from outright disbelief, which is not in play here, to being hesitant. It seems to be what is going on as Jesus comes to the disciples on the mountain is that some worshiped and some hesitated. Do you ever hesitate and wondering, is this really real? I worship you, God, but I'm not sure. It's not true that they lacked faith in who Jesus was. They just weren't sure. Is it really him? Is he really risen? They wanted him to be, but they hesitated. They were just not Sure, I imagine these disciples on the side of that mountain waiting for Jesus, not knowing when or where he would come to them, felt somewhat lost. What Matthew makes clear in this text is that Jesus comes to them. I want to talk about a song. I want to ask you children, Raise your hand if you know the song, Jesus Strong and Kind. How many of you know that song? Look at that. That's a really, it's a really interesting song. And um, a lot of times when we sing it, we think it's a, a children's song. It sounds like a children's song, but well, why do we all sing it? Well, because we're all children before the Lord. And so the first line says, Jesus said if, that if I thirst, I should come to him. In John 7, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And then in the second verse, Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to him. And so in Matthew 4, we read that they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed with demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them all. If I am weak, I should come to him. Verse 3, Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But then we come to verse 4. Verse 4 addresses the situation when you find yourself on a mountain not knowing what to do next. Am I in the right place? Is this, is, is this the right time? Verse 4, Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. 
he will come to me. Jesus invites us to come to him. But there are many times where we just don't know what's going on. And the circumstances of our life seem confusing. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you, you, you want to believe, but you, you hesitate. And you feel lost in this life. Jesus will come to you. You just wait for him on your mountain. He will come to you and find you. Number two, what has changed with Jesus? Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So as Jesus approaches them, he speaks to them. His initial statement, though, is, if you look at it carefully, it's kind of perplexing. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Wait a minute. Didn't he already have all authority? Isn't he, hasn't he been from eternity past, God? Well, his authority has not increased. It's not like he didn't have this authority, and now he does. Rather, as Don Carson puts it, the spheres in which Jesus now exercises his absolute authority are enlarged to include all heaven and all earth. In other words, the universe. This authority has been given. Given by whom? Given by God the Father, the one who sent Jesus into the world to die. Jesus doesn't grab for authority for himself his Father commissions him. In chapter 11, Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now those all things are actualized. Jesus has authority over all things in heaven and on earth. Well, what's it mean to have authority? Authority is a very dangerous word in our current cultural context and is grossly misunderstood. It has a variety of meanings in the New Testament. It can mean the right to use your property as you wish. I have authority over my bicycle. It can mean generally the ability to do something, to have mastery over something, the ability to control it, like being able to pitch a curveball. It can mean the power exercised by a ruler. Well, Jesus' authority fits all these definitions. In chapter 7, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one having authority. He demonstrated authority over sickness and demons. He showed the disciples that he had authority over storms and even the properties of water on a lake. He had authority to drive out the money changers in the temple. But he told his disciples that the authority he delegates to us, the authority he commissions us with, would be different from how the world thinks about authority. In our day, authority simply means power. Power to force something to comply with your will. 
In Matthew 20, Jesus tells his disciples not to seek offices of authority as the Gentiles do to lord it over people. Here's how he put it. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. As you read through the gospel, this is how Jesus functioned during his ministry in Israel. Now, as the resurrected king, he is taking his authority global. He has power over all things. World history is not the product of evolving matter. It is not the result of powerful people doing what they want. We need not fear war, nor epidemic, nor global warming, because Jesus has authority. And he exercises his power over all things in heaven and on earth. And he delegates to us his mission of extending his kingdom, just as he did when he walked on the land of Israel. So our authority is not the authority of control. It's the authority to proclaim. The authority to witness. In chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. But the eye of I am sending you, the eye of that sentence is the same one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And chapter 28 shows us that though Jesus suffered suffered through his life, suffered on the cross, we got a really happy ending. Amen. And that ending is here and is still yet to come. He has control. And he personally calls us to participate in the exercise of his authority as he tells us in the next two verses. Now we're going to see about what this, the authority of Jesus to delegate to us his mission, let's see what it's like. What did Jesus command? Number three, what did Jesus command in verses 19 and the first part of verse 20? Read it again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The there's only one word in this passage that uses the, the form of a, a verb called a command. And that is the word make disciples. The word before make disciples, go, literally going, also takes the sense of a command. There, so there is a command to move in some direction that leads to making disciples. The two verbs that follow, baptize and teach, become the consequences or entailments of making disciples. So they are, the 11 are to make 
disciples. Well, disciples of whom? They're to make disciples of Jesus. We don't make people our disciples, thank God. We lead them to Jesus, to see him in his works and hear him in his words so that they will be like us, Jesus' disciples. One of the reasons I think evangelism, we find evangelism so difficult in our day is that we are very squeamish about calling people to be disciples. We'd rather give them all the benefits that flow from the gospel into our lives, the peace of mind, the harmony in relationships, the, all that stuff. But <laughs> we, we live in a world, listen, you, you got to see this. We live in a world that promises choice over everything. You know what it means to be a disciple? It means you give up choice. In the ancient world, if you became a disciple, okay, so this is the, this is the context, that, this is the way the word was understood when Matthew wrote these verses. To be a disciple meant that you listened to your master, accepted whatever he taught as true, imitated his way of life, and did whatever he told you to do. <laughs> When we tell people about Jesus, this is what he is calling them to, to be his disciple. This is what he calls you and me to. What we value, how we do our work, how we parent and dwell together as married couples, our hobbies, where we live, what we drive. They are all subject to Jesus' word and Jesus' will because we're his disciples. You must, to become a disciple, lay down the false God of choice and take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Two things are the results of this going to make disciples. If someone sees him as he is, the Son of God who died in their place for the forgiveness of their sins, they will be baptized. So as we proclaim the message of Jesus and introduce people to Jesus and their eyes are open to who he is and they see that he has died for their sins as well and has brought them into a relationship with God the Father, we should baptize them. They need to make a public proclamation that they have died and risen with Christ by going under the water and coming out again. Jesus also mentions that we not only baptize them, but we teach them. We teach them. When a person becomes a disciple of Jesus, he embarks on a lifelong journey of the study of God's word so that he can increasingly observe what Jesus commanded. 
There are some aspects of my life and my understanding of things. I've been at this a long time where I just feel like a beginner and I'm trying to figure out how do his commands relate to this? So that, that's what a disciple is. A disciple is looking at Jesus, listening to Jesus, trying to understand Jesus and how he wants us to walk through this life. And we need to help a disciple be a disciple by sharing what we know of Jesus' commands and Jesus' way of life with them. I've heard it said in the past that this passage is a command only to the 11 disciples and to Matthias, who they chose as number 12 in a few weeks' time. And then Paul was added, as he said, one untimely. Uh, uh, and so they say this, this doesn't really uh, apply to us. It was to the original disciples. And then they wrote down the Bible and gave that to us. But that doesn't make sense. This applies to every disciple. You want to know why? Because Jesus said to teach every disciple to observe all that Jesus commanded. And one of the commands is make disciples. So each of us here who is a disciple of Jesus is called into this task. Each of us is called to go. Some have interpreted this to mean that we are called to go to the nations. And that we must go to foreign lands to fulfill this command. And they would say that, is, that the exception would be if God calls you to stay. But that's not what the text says at all. All nations simply means all kinds of people. No exceptions. Jesus restricted his mission leading up to his death to the people of Israel. But now he's going global. And he's telling us to bring the good news of his life and his death and his resurrection to all people without regard to their birth or tribe or class or ability. Going make disciples. And when God opens their eyes, baptize them, teach them. Question number four, what did Jesus promise? The end of verse 20. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus does not send us out and say, get back to me after you have some results, okay? He stays with us. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel explains to Joseph that Mary is in fact pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Matthew explains that this took place to fulfill prophecy. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. We are to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Holy Trinity. God three in one. One in three. This God, in the person of Jesus Christ, promises to be with us. I want you to notice how 
personally Jesus-focused this passage is. Because this is the Jesus who's come to you. Jesus directs them to the mountain. Jesus comes to them. Jesus speaks to them. All authority is given to Jesus. He tells us to make people to be Jesus' disciples. We are to baptize them in Jesus' name. We are to teach them what Jesus taught. And then it ends with, Jesus will be with us to the very end of the age in which we live. Literally, the text reads, all the days. I am with you all the days. If you are Jesus' disciple, no matter how bad or how good your day may be, He is with you. The day and the age may change, but the message is the same. Because Jesus is the eternal Son of God, one with the Father and the Spirit. And God never changes. He stays with us and we observe His commands. We observe all of them. We don't adapt the commands to the age. We call people of our age to follow Jesus, to be His disciple. We adapt to Him. Our mission is timeless and it is global. It is comprehensive. Notice the word all that runs through the passage. And this is, this is intentional. This is part of the art of Matthew's Gospel. All authority, all nations, all that Jesus commands, all the days. Matthew's Gospel ends as it began and as it runs throughout. We are called to witness Jesus Christ as He is. And when we see Him, to believe in Him and to submit to Him in His Word and to testify to what we see, we go to all nations across the backyard fence, over to the next cube in the office, across the family dinner table, in the market, or on the ball field. Some of us may travel to other lands. All are to go. We don't make disciples as if we were following a recipe. We're simply making a personal introduction. I would like to introduce you to Jesus Christ. That's all we're doing. I've come to know Him. I would love it if you came to see Him as He is. How a person responds is up to God. It's up to the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We are His disciples. We are witnesses because we have seen Jesus in His Word by the Spirit. And so we testify to what we see and conform our lives to His life and what He says. And through this testimony of ours, just like this testimony came to you from someone else who had witnessed Jesus, so we bring this testimony
And through this testimony, Jesus makes disciples. Disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciples in every age, from first century Israel to the hypermodern, tech-dominated United States of America in the 21st century. This is our commission, and it begins and ends not with us, but with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I am aware that as I seek to proclaim these words and make them plain, you do work in a variety of ways. Pray, Lord, we pray for those who feel lost on the mountain. Jesus, that you would come to them. We pray for those of us who are maybe confused about what evangelism is or intimidated. We pray that you would make it plain to us that we are simply called to introduce people to Jesus and tell them what we know about him. We pray, Lord, that you would show us what going means for each one of us and that you would give us boldness to call people to be disciples of Jesus, not consumers, disciples. And we pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would make us aware that you, Jesus, are personally with us as much here in this schoolroom in 21st century America as you were on the mountain with the disciples 2,000 years ago. Make us aware of your presence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.